Good morning, everyone. My name is JB with Not By Works Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. It is Monday, July 24th, 2023, and we have another fantastic week planned. I'm so excited about several of my friends and colleagues that we will be uh, talking with on uh, the program throughout the week. We kick the week off today with actually two podcasts. We're starting today with uh, our friend Lucas Doremus, who will be back with us again today talking about uh, Jesus parables. We're going to call today's podcast Jesus Enigmatic Parables of the Kingdom, the Mysteries of the Kingdom that Jesus uh, talks about in Matthew 13 and also in Mark 14. And, um, and then uh, this afternoon, we'll have episode three of our new series, uh, Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. So we've got that ready to post, and uh, I, know, I know many folks are really enjoying that. And uh, if you've sent in a question recently, uh, remember our new model is we answer those uh, through these podcasts. So don't expect a response uh, necessarily, but uh, listen to that series, if nothing else, and you'll hear your question answered in one of those uh, Q&A sessions that we are now doing a, a couple of times a week. Uh, let me just give you a quick rundown on the rest of the week. Tomorrow, of course, is Prophecy Night. I'll be talking about uh, the surge in world organizations, world government organizations, uh, those types of uh, agencies that have world in the name, you know, World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, uh, those types of things. And uh, as a sign of the times geopolitically that we are getting closer and closer uh, to the uh, the satanic New World Order system. So that's tomorrow night. Prophecy Night, of course, is always live streamed. You can live stream it at notbyworks.org at six o'clock mountain time. Or if you're in the Denver metro area, come out tomorrow night and join us on Tuesday at six o'clock there at uh, Plum Creek Chapel at, in uh, Sedalia, Colorado. Wednesday, we'll have Randy back on for our weekly world events update. I uh, spent some time with Randy this weekend and lots going on in the world. I always enjoy uh, hearing his uh, commentary and uh, thoughts about what's going on in the world. Uh, Thursday, Brad Mastin is back on. Friday, we've got two podcasts. I'll be a guest on Stand Up for the Truth with Mary Danielson uh, Friday morning, and we will post that as soon as uh, they release it. It's a live interview. And then uh, Friday afternoon, we'll have uh, my good friend and colleague Shane on from to give us kind of a technology update and, and, and so forth. And then we started a new series on Saturdays uh, on how to prepare. And so Saturday, we'll be talking with uh, Randy on another uh, installment of preparedness advice and, and topics uh, there. So what a, a week ahead. I'm so excited and uh, looking forward to each one of those. But today we've got Lucas Doremus and, you know, the parables of the kingdom in Scripture are, are you know, some of those sections of Scripture that are the most uh, mishandled, I think, we'll see what Lucas thinks, uh, in all of the Gospels. You know, people apply them uh, in different ways. They don't really see them in light of eschatology, in light of God's plan of the ages. And so uh, Lucas has written a book. In fact, our church, Plum Creek Chapel, is, is using his book on Jesus' parables as a uh, study on our Wednesday night Bible study with one of our elders. And uh, he's just really spent a lot of time uh, and effort investing and studying and, and researching these parables. And so I thought it would be nobody better really to, to dive into this topic of the parables of the kingdom. So Lucas, welcome to the program. So glad to have you back. Oh, JB, it's great to be back. What a blessing. Yeah, you bet. So <laughs> let's start uh, kind of as broad as we can. What is a parable? 
Yeah, uh, that is, a, what is a parable? Uh, we'll just start, the Greek word is a parabole, or parabole, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it right, I'm no Greek scholar, uh, <laughs> but it's a compound word. Para means alongside, and bole, or bowl, means to throw. So if you literally took that word, it would mean to throw alongside. Now, what they what the Greeks understood it as, it as is a comparison. So a parable is simply a comparison. Uh, now, you know, if you wanted to go in Strong's or Vines or something like that, or the uh, BDAG, you'd get a little bit bigger definition. But very simply, it's a comparison. Now, that word is not always translated parable uh, in the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated proverb, symbolic, or figurative. But in each of those cases, it always carries this idea of comparison. Now, in uh, Mark 4.30, to, to go away... Now, JB, I know you like this too. Isn't it nice when Scripture defines things for us? Oh, yeah. You know, Strong's, Vines, BDAG, any of those, those are really great. But when Scripture defines something, that's even better. Yeah, let me uh, let me interject for our listeners. Uh, when he's talking about Strong's and Vines and BDAG, those are standard Greek lexicons. A lexicon is just another word for dictionary. And, uh, you know, we need to remember that dictionaries or lexicons, they simply give us a range of possible meanings, the way in which words are used. In other words, it gives a survey of the usage of words. And so you don't necessarily know what a word means simply by looking it up in a dictionary. You've got to see it in context. But uh, Lucas, you're right. When the scriptures define it for us, for example, defining the word faith in uh, Hebrews 11 uh, as another example, it, it really uh, kind of removes all doubt, doesn't it? Yeah, or say Acts 16, where the Bible very pointedly uses the Philippian jailer to say, what must I do to be saved? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I know you've heard this, you know, you hear that verse, what must I do to be saved? And then the next verse answers it, answers it believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times have you heard people go somewhere else to somebody, some other verse instead of just reading the next one? Yeah, uh, I, know, I know I've heard it a ton. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty simple. And if there's one thing the Bible is clear about, it's the gospel and how to be saved. But uh, by the way, back to that Greek word parable, it's actually parabole. It's an omicron, not, not an omega. And uh, and it's, uh, it's a compound word, as you said, beside para, the prefix, and bale, to throw. So the idea is you throw alongside a spiritual principle or maxim some everyday you know, illustration to make a point. So you you compare an everyday, you know, idea with, you know, a biblical truth or a spiritual truth to, to make a point. So Jesus was speaking yeah. uh, in parables. But anyway, continue. Yeah. So in Mark 30, to keep going on that idea, Mark 4, 4, verse 30, it says, Then he said, this is Jesus talking, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? And I think that word picture there is so uh, so clear about what he's doing. You know, if you wanted a really simple definition, of a parable is a picture. So like you just said, it creates this situation. Uh, it's not necessarily real life, but it could be. So it's this hypothetical situation, and it's to give you a picture. Um, and so that really, that's what a parable is. Now, by my count, uh, I think there's 53 parables in the Gospels. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not dogmatic about that because there are other figures of speech. Uh, you know, JB, I spend a whole chapter, we're not going to go into it, talking about what is not a parable. There, If you look at all the research, there's a general agreement about what a parable is, which is what you said. It's this situation, you know, this picture. But as far as what is not a parable, that's not as clear. Um, 
and you know I make the point that teachers we don't teach in strict figures of speech you know we don't come to a sermon and go okay now I'm going to use a metaphor or now I'm going to use a hyperbole or now I'm going to do this we just teach and whatever comes out so I think there's research out there that I looked up that they've identified like 250 some parts of speech or something like that depending on what uh you know research you look at but the Greeks didn't do that. You know, they didn't have 250 parts of speech. They weren't sitting in air-conditioned colleges thinking about all this. And so, uh, but anyway, uh, to, to just go that, a parable is a picture. Mm-hmm. And that makes it pretty simple. Now, why did he teach in parables? Well, again, Jesus tells us exactly what the purpose of parables are. So in Matthew 13, now he does, Jesus, this is a repeated section in Luke and Mark, but Matthew 13 has the most uh, detail, so that's the one we'll use. Uh, Verse 10 in Matthew 13, and the disciples came came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, that would be the multitudes, it has not been given. So Jesus very quickly divides everyone into two groups, those that it has been given, those that it has not been given. And we'll, where it says the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, we'll, we'll deal with that a little bit later. Um, but verse 12, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So when you are not, when you're part of this not given, uh, you're going to see it, you're going to hear it, but you're not going to understand what's going on. Uh, And I think ultimately that's a matter of faith. You know, when Jesus was here on earth, the people who uh, did were not, it was not been given, the easiest group to point at is the Pharisees. They did not want to believe in Jesus. I mean, it's very clear they did not want Jesus as a savior. They might have wanted him as a king to overthrow throw Rome, but they didn't want to believe in him as savior. They surely didn't want him as Messiah. They wanted to keep their power structure. They wanted to keep their pride, you know, the various things that we find in scripture. And so he's going to tell them, but they're not going to understand. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is is from a human perspective and a sort of a chronological linear perspective, uh, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not, as John puts it. Uh, But from a prophetic perspective, the Old Testament tells us that the Jews would reject the Messiah at his first coming; that they would, mm-hmm. you know, they would uh, stumble at the, you know, cornerstone and that kind of thing. So, uh, it really, you know, is is kind of interesting how again and again God's word tells us what's going to happen, and yet still holds, in this case, the nation of Israel, or in some cases, individuals responsible for their own uh, choices to reject uh, the Lord. But yeah, this is uh, so. These parables of the kingdom uh, happen. Uh, sort of midway through his ministry, not quite at the end. By the way, I think earlier I said Mark 14. Obviously, I meant Mark 4. But uh, the uh, where, where do these fall in in his three and a half year ministry? Uh, if I recall, it's about the midpoint. It's it, yeah. Actually, that's super important because in Matthew chapter 12, uh, that's where uh, Jesus withdraws the offer of the kingdom because that's when the nation 
well, can we can we say it like this? Officially mm-hmm. rejected as Messiah or King. Uh, that's when they committed the unpardonable sin. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus before that was saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is is near." Uh, not happening right now on earth, but it's here, as in it's available. You can believe in me. The kingdom will start. Um, but in Matthew chapter 12, it's revoked. Right. There is no more offer of the kingdom at that Yeah, point. and describe for our listeners the, the unpardonable sin, because that's one of the frequent questions that I get. And uh, and so and I'm happy to answer it, too. But uh, what what is specifically the unpardonable sin that Jesus is talking about in context? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, you've got Jesus healing a demon-possessed man, and and that's about starts at about verse 22. And then you've got the Pharisees in verse 24 saying, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Now, notice they didn't say the miracle didn't happen. Uh, they couldn't say that. I mean, the demon-possessed man is healed right in front of them. I, can't, I mean, they can't deny it. But here, the only thing they can do is say, well, that's actually Satan. Now, they, they call him Beelzebub here, but, I mean, Satan, adversary, whatever you want to call him. And then, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said, and then he actually tells a couple parables. The kingdom of the parable, the kingdom divided, uh, the parable of the strong man. Um, and he says, you know, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. And so Jesus is really, I mean, this is a scathing remark uh because they're saying yeah he's not really doing it by god it's by satan that's honestly that's ridiculous and uh jesus actually uses parables maybe we'll get to there someday but in verse 31 therefore i say to you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven now what i always take this to is uh john 16 you know, in John 16, Jesus is talking about what the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of. And he says he's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Here's verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me. So the only sin that's not going to be forgiven is the sin of unbelief. Now, in the context, I think this is a sin specifically about the Jewish nation that they rejected their Messiah, and that's unpardonable. They are not getting that back. But, you know, even if you want to disagree with that, the only other unpardonable sin is unbelief. So yeah. either way, it's a matter of faith. Yeah, it's it, it's mm-hmm. clearly in context. You don't see it ever referenced again in the epistles. It's clearly talking about that that sort of when Israel uh, reached the point of no return. You know, they—, they yep. They crossed that line formally and finally and resolutely said, we're not going to have you as our king. And it was really a national uh, thing. And so they crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown. And consequently, they you know died in unbelief. Uh, from an application standpoint, I've often said that even though it's not technically the unpardonable sin, uh, the only way you could equate that to the present age is, you know, if someone dies in unbelief, so they die and go to hell, if you were to look back in retrospect over their life, that last final moment when they heard the gospel or were confronted with the gospel but rejected it, did not believe it, 
that could be called the unpardonable sin, or at least it's akin to the unpardonable sin in the sense of unbelief. But you're right. A lot of people think, oh, you know, I can... What you know? Can I commit the unpardonable sin today? Well, of course not. Believers cannot commit unbelief because they've already believed, and and belief <laughs> right. in the gospel is is a one time moment in time when faith meets the gospel, and at that moment you are, uh, you know, saved. You're born again. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and and the Spirit takes up residence, and so on and so forth. Now, as a believer, our faith can ebb and flow in terms of the strength of our faith and our sanctification process, but you can't. Uh, undo what Christ did for you the moment you believe the gospel. So, no, absolutely not. Christians cannot commit the unpardonable sin in a technical sense. The unpardonable sin was a national sin that's only referenced during the apostolic age, you know, during Christ's earthly ministry. And uh, I agree with you completely on that uh, on that assessment there. Yeah, and and the reason I point to John sixteen talking about you know sin as an unbelief is because I just want to drive that home. That's like, this is about belief. Yeah. You know, it's like the unpardonable sin was first century Israel. That's what it was. But like you said, by way of application, unbelief is still the only thing that you will be have unpardoned. Yeah. Uh, What is it, John? uh, Let me look it up here. John 8, 24, I think it is. Therefore, you, Jesus said, therefore, I say to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So mm-hmm. ultimately, and, and by the way, I talk about this in my book, Top 10 Reasons Some People Go to Hell, and the one reason no one ever has to. The ultimate reason anybody ends up in hell is unbelief. You know, mm-hmm. They've all committed that unpardonable sin, so to speak, right? Uh, right. But uh, there are certainly many influences and things that would keep people from believing the gospel that lead them astray. But ultimately, as Jesus said in John 8, 24, it is unbelief that puts you in hell. So back to you know back to the the parables here. So the right. Israel rejects the Messiah, and then that's a turning point. That's a pivotal point. From then on, all the way up to the cross in his earthly ministry, he is beginning to focus his attention more on the disciples, and also yep. alludes to. And I don't want to get too far ahead here uh, with your definition of mysteries of the kingdom, but he begins to, would it be fair to say, at least allude to the fact that there's going, the kingdom's going to come in a different way and perhaps different time than what they thought. Yeah, there, so, yeah, that turning point, you know, it it, it happens, and then Jesus's ministry sort of changes. But yeah, you're right. Now, so many of the parables about kingdom, now, the mystery kingdom parables, there's nine of them, eight of them are in Matthew, one's in Mark, but there's lots of other parables, by my count, 30, that are specifically about the kingdom, and many of them are just about getting in or out of the kingdom, and a number of them also have, you know, somebody, you know, a landowner or whatever going away and then coming back, which is exactly what Jesus is going to do. And so, yeah, so many of these pictures, the parables, tell us exactly what's going to happen, um, you know, I was going to make this point later. We can make it now. There is so much doctrine taught through parables. It's really kind of staggering. I mean, you can prove, you know, a pre-trib, uh, pre-millennial, you know, rapture and all that. You can prove a lot just by using parables mm-hmm. with, with almost nothing else. Yeah. And it's really pretty cool how much is taught through them. Yeah, especially if you understand them in in context. You know, we go to the Olivet Discourse where Jesus uses a lot of analogies and illustrations and people, you know, forget the context. Um, 
but you know, when you're dealing with parables, one of the key things to remember is, you know, parables teach a primary principle. You know, you don't want to try to assign meaning arbitrarily to every single detail and minutia in the parable. They're they're basically giving a big picture, uh, you know, idea here. Uh, and you know, I'm sure you, you're probably going to get to this, but just because I know we've got some listeners out there that have probably been taught this. These parables, the mysteries of the kingdom or mysteries about the kingdom, are not teaching a mystery form of the kingdom, correct? Nope. No, I, I don't I don't think they are. Um, but why don't we save that for a little okay, bit? Yeah, you bet. Because um, yeah. we kind of stopped halfway through um, this Matthew section we were going over. So we stopped at Matthew 13, 13, and we got on this tangent of talking about the people that are not going to understand the parables. Uh, but one other purpose that's the big one of parables uh, in verse 14, and in them, that's the people who don't understand, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Oh, so parables are a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, here's from Isaiah and, and also a little bit from Psalms. Uh, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Mm. So this kind of, you alluded to this and I'm going to kind of expand on it. You know, it's kind of interesting when we think about things from our perspective, we see this verse about how God is not going to heal them. And we think, well, that's kind of weird. Why wouldn't God want to heal them? Well, because God has a much different perspective on, you know, human life and history than we do. He'd already prophesied that this was going to happen, yet at no point did he take away, say, the Pharisees' free will of choosing God. Mm -mm. So Jesus is teaching these parables. Well, what's interesting is the parables of the two sons, which we won't go into that, but remember the parable of the two sons, the father tells them to work, and one son says, I'm not going to go. Then he feels bad, and he goes anyway. And the other son says, I'm going to go, but never does. Now, it said right after that parable, the un Pharisees understood that Jesus was talking about them. And Jesus's point is, be like the first son. Be like the guy who said, no, denied Jesus, changed his mind, and then believed in him. Be like mm -hmm. that son. And the Pharisees understood it. So lest anybody think that God didn't give the Pharisees a chance because he prophesied it, so he just kind of overruled their free will. That's not the case at all. Mm -mm. He prophesied it because it was going to happen, but at no time did he violate their choice. Yeah, amen. Yeah, that's the whole tension there between sovereignty and free will, and the Bible teaches both, uh, and uh, we accept them both because the Scripture very clearly teaches that we are free will moral agents that have a choice. Mm -hmm. And so when people say, well, why did the Pharisees not believe? Well, to a point you can say, well, because it was prophesied that they wouldn't. You could also say, well, it was their pride that kept it. Both are true. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. go ahead. Yeah. And so, you know, hardening his heart, a lot of people bring that up. And like, yep. you know, we go back to Pharaoh and the children of Israel leaving Egypt. And, you know, yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but he hardened his own heart, like something like six or seven times before yep. God did that. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, it's kind of like the unpardonable sin. There comes a point when, you know, the nation of Israel, you know, has kind of set their course and God says, okay, yep. you know. Yeah. And like the, yeah, you bring up, I was going to bring up that example too, but in Exodus, Exodus 7, 13, 
Uh, well, God said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart, but really the first thing that happens, this is after the rods were thrown down, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Mm-hmm. As in God said it was going to happen, but Pharaoh did it. Exactly. And then, and then as you read the story, God continues it and Pharaoh continues too. I mean, it's a, it's a yeah. both and. You know, yes, totally. War. Great point. Um, but let's, uh, let, let's finish out this Matthew 13 part. Uh, but now he's talking in verse 16, Jesus starts talking to the other group. That's the group that's going to understand. But blessed are your ears, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Um, you know, that brings to mind uh, the, the little section in First Peter where the prophets were wanting to see what they were prophesying. Because, you know, it's possible they didn't always quite understand what they were prophesying because they just couldn't see it. But here we have the disciples seeing exactly what is going on. The Messiah is here and they're understanding it. And you know what? Jesus is going to rise from the die and rise from the dead and they're going to go out and spread the gospel through the whole world. Hmm. Yeah. And so that's that is the that's the purpose of gospel of parables. It both reveals and conceals truth. And it also fulfills prophecy. And that's yeah. very important. Um, now, uh, explaining prophet, uh, parables. So this is, yeah, like kind of you said, this is where we all get a little mixed up. Uh, we could say easily context, context, context. I mean, that's, I mean, that's how you interpret anything in the Bible is mm-hmm. context, context, context. But all parables have an audience. You know, sometimes Jesus is talking only to the disciples. Could have been just the twelve. Uh, he had other people following him. Could have been more than that. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes it was a specific number of disciples. Um, sometimes it was the multitudes. Um, but in all cases, and we're going to keep driving this point, the audience is Jewish. Now, in the multitudes, because Rome was there and, you know, it's a trade route and things like that, there there were Gentiles around. But Jesus is talking to the Jews. He's talking to Israel. And that's very, very important. Um, the other thing that's very important about the parable is what is the prompt? As in, what is prompting the parable to be told? Uh, you know, in some cases, Jesus just looks at a situation and tells him a parable. Other times, like say the rich young ruler, the best way to drive home Jesus's point about the rich young ruler asking to get into he- heaven is a parable. And that's the compassionate Samaritan parable. <laughs> and so those prompts are important to know the meaning. You said this before, parables have one meaning, as in they have one point they're trying to drive home. Now, in the book, I call it a provoked thought, um, but it's just it's the meaning. It's the one point he's trying to drive home. Now, why can I say um, that there's only one point? Well, because most parables, Jesus gives us the meaning. Um, most parables are not left up to us to decide what it means. So often Jesus tells us, here's the meaning of the parable. Usually it's with therefore or likewise, so also, a little word like that introduces it. But Jesus only ever gives one meaning whenever he's interpreting his own parables. So I take that to mean parables only have one meaning. Yeah, and and the reason that's important is that it it 
the parables lend themselves to allegorical interpretation, which of course is not proper. Allegorical interpretation is when we sort of come up with this fanciful idea in our mind of what these words on the page mean, rather than letting the words just speak for themselves. And so, uh, for example, some parables like uh, the Ten Virgins, you know, in the Olivet Discourse, people will assign all kinds of meaning to the oil and the lamp and the yeah. door and the this and the that. And, and, and all he's really saying there is just be ready, you know, telling Israel to be ready because I'm coming. You need don't don't reject me again like you did the first time. And so, yeah, it's very important to not get caught up with trying to come up with creative, you know, identifications of every detail. What's the main point? Yep. And that the details, that's where you just said, that's where they get hung up. Sometimes the details matter, like in the parable of the sower, which I think we're going to get to. Jesus tells us what each of those four soils are. So clearly those details are details that matter. Other times, the details don't matter as much except to serve what the story is. Mm -hmm. um, you use the parable of the ten virgins. That's a great example. Uh, the one I look to is, again, the good, the, I call it the compassionate Samaritan, but it's the good Samaritan parable. Uh, if I said the two denarii that the Samaritan paid for the guy at the end was, say, the two kingdoms of Israel, well, that would be way outside the point of the meaning of the parable, which the purpose of that parable is to just be compassionate. Mm -hmm. He's telling the young ruler, be compassionate as the Samaritan was compassionate. That's the purpose. So the two coins are just there as a detail to say, yeah, that's how much he paid because he was taking care of this guy. Yeah. Um, another example from that parable, you know, the, the Levite and the priest, they walk right by. Well, I could take that meaning and say, well, see, all religious people are not going to be compassionate. <laughs> well, I can get an application out of that, that sometimes religious people are not compassionate in the way they should. You know, sometimes I can apply things like that, like we talked about the kingdom parables and, you know, the guys going away and coming back. Sometimes they have that real world application, but it's only there to serve what the meaning of the parable is. And we can't take it too far. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. And so when you're thinking about these details, you got to be very, very careful. Sometimes they do have meaning. Most of the time they don't. <laughs> yeah. So parables, uh, they fulfill prophecy. Uh, they both uh, reveal and conceal truth. They uh, happened at a pivotal point in uh, God, uh, Jesus' earthly ministry when Israel had formally rejected uh, the king. Uh, and so Jesus adapts his, his teaching methodology in fulfillment of prophecy to then begin to talk more about uh, the, uh, the unexpected, you might say, nature of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that brings up another uh, item of interpretation um, is that, uh, you, you know, with the kingdom, um, listeners on your show, uh, we're, you know, the rapture is going to happen and then the tribulation is going to start with the signing of the peace treaty. Jesus is going to come back at the end of those seven years. We'll be coming back with him and then we'll have a thousand year millennial kingdom on earth. Uh, Satan will rebel one more time, and then that kingdom will carry on into eternity. Um, so I don't think we need to go into great length uh, about that, because I think your listeners are familiar with it. But as far as parables are concerned, it's very important to realize that the kingdom parables are not about the church. That's right. Yeah. The church did not exist 
we get some inferences to the church in the Gospels, like Jesus saying, I will build my church, but the church does not exist. Yeah, and that's what I was getting at. And you're right, I jumped the gun a little bit earlier when when I talked about mystery form of the kingdom. Some people Mm -hmm. will literally insert words in the text, and the text never talks about uh, or never mentions a mystery, quote, form of the kingdom. But, uh, you know, replacement theologians love to kind of twist these parables and make them basically saying, well, because Israel rejected the kingdom, Christ then shifted his focus and made it a spiritual kingdom that's going to be fulfilled in the church. And they call this the mystery form of the kingdom. But a mystery uh, isn't uh, you know, a mystery is simply unrevealed truth in the past that's now being revealed. It's new information. You can just translate mystery as new information. And so the question here, which you're going to get to, is what is the new information about the kingdom? Not a different, yep. you know, fulfillment. I mean, the, the you know, our listeners certainly know, and we've talked about it at length, that kingdom always refers to the literal earthly kingdom of Christ as prophesied in the Old Testament. It has boundaries. It has a brick and mortar temple. It has a throne. It has a king. Uh, it has subjects. It's, you know, kingdom means kingdom. It's never, you know, spiritualized to mean some type of metaphorical idea. And so, what, when we talk about mysteries about the kingdom or mysteries of the kingdom, the question is, what is, what's the new information here, right? Yeah. The new information, I think, are the details mm-hmm. that are contained in these parables. I'm going to tip my hat a little bit because uh, I don't think we're going to get to this parable today. But say, take the parable of the mustard seed. To, we'll discuss this more at length when we get to it. The point of the parable of mustard seed is that the kingdom is going to start small. And then it's going to be really big. Yeah. that That's the point of the parable. Now, that detail. Now, in the Old Testament, we know that the kingdom is going to be global, but it's never really this growth process. If you look throughout the Old Testament, it's never really stated that way. So that detail, the kingdom hasn't changed from the Old Testament, but we now know, oh, it's going to start small and then grow very big. Yeah, and which... Which is exactly what we see, uh, you know, in eschatology in the study of the end times is that when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation, you know, it's a small remnant of believers that have not taken the mark, that have not rejected Christ and followed the Antichrist. And uh, and the population of the earth, I was just looking at this this morning, for, in, I was working, doing a little work on my prophecy night study for tomorrow night, and, uh, you know, the, the population depending on kind of what assumptions you make, basically goes from 8 billion to 1 billion people on earth by the time Christ comes back. Uh, mm-hmm. So it is going to be a small you know, remnant that starts, but as the mustard seed you know, talks about, and we'll come back to this in, a, in our next episode or whenever we get to it, but it, it blossoms into this massive populated earth over a thousand year period, which that's a long time, right? Uh, of believers and people that are following the Messiah. So uh, yeah, that's, that's right. It's uh, it's, that's new information. Mm-hmm. And if any, for, by way of just kind of, you know, doing some synergy between uh, passages, uh, God destroyed the earth once before and restarted with eight people mm-hmm. and look where we are now. Yeah. So I am not I am not prophetically saying only eight people will be left at the end of the tribulation. I'm <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. But imagine when you have a thousand years and people live longer, you don't have accidental death, all those conditions of the kingdom. Imagine how many people are going to be there after a thousand years. 
Yeah. You know, if you only started with eight, I mean, you're still going to have a lot. So yeah, the, the mysteries of the kingdom, they're new information that hasn't been revealed yet about the kingdom. It's more detail. Well, just like, you know, so, yeah. So let's talk about the, the, uh, the first one, if we're up to that point in Matthew 13, and that is the parable of the soils. So yes, the parable of the sower. So this is a very, very, uh, familiar one. Uh, we'll go ahead and read it. Uh, this is Jesus talking. He says, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured it. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And I love when Jesus says that. It's like a big exclamation point, like, listen up, you know, kind of thing. So so what always, so <laughs> this isn't actually the point of the parable, but it is a detail. And we need to deal with it because it's always a question that comes up. Um, which of these soils are going to heaven? Which of them are saved? Which are believers? And so Jesus in uh, Matthew 13, verse 18, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Now, this is to the disciples. Uh, the way uh, Matthew organizes his material, it's not totally clear who he's given the explanation to, but we know from Mark, it's to the disciples. So anyway, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, okay, so that must be the seed. So here we know the details. The, in this parable, the details matter. Then the wicked one, that'd be Satan, comes and snatches away what he has sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. Now, we can compare other scripture where in 2 Corinthians, uh, we're told that Satan can blind men's hearts to the gospel. So we know that Satan has a hand in uh, people not believing. Now, kind of as we talked before, this does not, Satan is not overriding anyone's free will, um, but we know he has a hand in it, and that's clear from this parable. Yeah, so and these, what's, what's also important to understand, because in English, it uses the same word received, each one of these received the seed, but the the, the first two here, the word received is spero, the verb, and it's a mm-hmm. passive, and it's, uh, it's literally means had seed sown to him. So this 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 person whom Satan blinds his heart to the gospel is one who, you know, they had the seed sown, but rejected it, didn't, did not, it never landed. They didn't understand it. So in fact, Jesus says that he did not understand it. In order to be saved, you have to hear and you have to understand the gospel, right? You can't just hear it by osmosis. Right. Yeah. Right. And we know from Romans 1, if we want to compare another section of scripture, we know everyone understands there's a god mm-hmm. <laughs> there are no atheists you right. can say you are but there aren't any right yeah. and so from this um and i always go to uh, the the is it uh, second timothy where god says all he desires all men to be saved mm-hmm. yeah. as in as in god is doing everything he possibly can to get everybody to believe he's not going to force it but he's doing everything he, well he already has done everything he can and then the holy spirit is convicting everybody yeah and so no one can, you know, no one can get up to heaven and claim they didn't know. That's right. That's right. You know, no one can do that. So these th- these people are not saved. Verse twenty. But he who received the seed on stony places 
This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, which goes back to what you were saying. It receives it. This person believed. Mm -hmm. Now, if that wasn't clear, let's keep reading. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. Well, you can't endure if you never existed. So this person clearly had faith. Yeah, and two different words for receive there. So let me read verse 20 again. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Not the same word. Two different times received is usually the first time it's that sparrow, meaning who had seeds sown there. But this time he receives it. It's the word lambano. It means he takes possession of it. It's the same word that's used in John 1, 12, to as many as received him, to him, he gave the power to become the child of God. So we have to receive the free gift of salvation. And in this case, you're right. They were definitely saved, but they didn't have, you know, they didn't grow and weren't strong and mature. And therefore they got, uh, you know, when tribulation came, they stumbled. And, and even in, if you wanted extra, in Luke's telling of this parable, he even says the ones on the rock are those when they hear, receive the word with joy. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> he even adds a little adjective there. Too. Yeah, yeah. So so this person clearly saved. And uh, and so does uh, Matthew. Matthew says receives it with joy, too. Oh, yeah. I did, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. I didn't even. Well, look at me. For yeah. when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Mm -hmm. And so the problem is the troubles of life come. Notice it says, because of the word, as in somebody says something like, you're not, you don't really believe that, do you? Or you're not really going to go to church, are you? Or you're not really going to not lie. Or I don't know, who, who knows what it is? They stumble and they give it up. And what a shame that is. Now, we know that they're still going to heaven, but what a shame that they don't endure. Um, verse 22, now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful, as in he was fruitful at one time. Well, you can't be fruitful if you were never a believer. Mm -hmm. um, Hebrews chapter 11 makes that very clear. You, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Yeah. So this one is also saved. Now, his reason is a little bit different. Uh, the cares of this world and the, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, as in he gets wanting to earn money more. Uh, maybe he wants a promotion at work. Maybe he just wants to do something else with his time that's more fun than, say, studying or singing or praying or whatever it is. And he loses his drive to become fruitful. Uh, is it uh, in Second uh, uh, Timothy where P Paul talks about Demas? Uh, um, go, going away. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, where Demas uh, Four, leaves him. Only. Yeah. Demas has forsaken him. Mm -hmm. There it is. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. That was a seed among thorny, thorny um, soil. Perfect example. Um, and so that is one that becomes unfruitful. Uh, verse twenty-three, though. But he who receives seed on the good ground is. He hears the word and understands it. Who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. So this is a person who believes and is fruitful throughout their life. Now, the point when it says hundredfold, 60, 30 is people are going to have different amounts of fruit. 
not everybody's going to be the same. Now, and also, don't get too hung up on the order of these words. It says some 100-fold, some 60, and some 30, because Luke reverses that order when he tells it. So we just got through, well, which of these seeds are saved, because that always comes up. But what's the point of the parable? What is, what is Jesus getting at with this mystery kingdom parable? People are going to respond to the gospel, the word, differently. And we know that's the case because in the millennial kingdom, we know people are, all people aren't going to be saved. And from this parable, we now learn, well, not only are people not going to be saved, but we also know that not everybody's going to act the same. Some people are going to be very unfruitful. Um, JB, you know, I just heard it this week. I know you hear it a ton too, but isn't it amazing how, how easy it is to, when you're talking about you know, faith versus being fruitful or works or doing good things. Why is it so easy for us to say things like, well, faith has to produce works or faith will always produce works. Or if you're not doing works, then you got to question what you believe. Or I just heard that again this week. And why is that so easy? Yeah, it's the age old attack on grace. I mean, people just don't understand grace. Satan hates grace. You know, grace is a free gift. He, he wants people to think that they can earn salvation. And he, uh, you know, he, he thinks he, you know, can, can convince people of that, that big lie. And uh, so works, uh, works will preach, boy, you, you can really motivate people by, by works, you know, you try harder, be better, do this, do that, you know, self-help. And, and if you just do better, just try harder, you can, you know, get there. And, and the pride of, 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 people is just so strong that it's hard for us to think we can get something as valuable as eternal life for nothing. But that's mm-hmm. the only hope. Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay most of it. And so, you know, you, you've got to simply come empty-handed to the cross and say, I cannot save myself. I need you to save me. I was talking with something, one of my daughters about this just yesterday, you know, the whole James 2 passage, which is completely misunderstood. But uh, yeah, and, and then Sunday at... Uh, Plum Creek. By the way, I'm aware that we had some technical issues. We didn't realize it till after it was recorded. So the sound quality is subpar in Sunday's message at Plum Creek. We apologize for that. You can still hear it and listen to it, but it's not up to the standard that we normally have. So we're looking into what happened there. I'm not really sure because we had it all fixed and, and working great the last few weeks. But anyway, uh, yeah, we I just talked about uh, on uh, on Sunday, this whole idea of you know how you should not look to your behavior to validate whether or not you're saved. The Scripture never tells us, "Hey, you better check out your behavior and be sure you're really saved." No, that that's that's crazy. We're not saved by works. That's the whole mission of our ministry, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Mm-hmm. Now, and using the parables. You know, we read it a second ago in, in Matthew 13. It says, even what he has will be taken away from him. That phrase is also repeated in the parable of the talents and the parables of the minas. Now, in the parable of the minas, that servant who's unprofitable, they get their mina taken away from them, but they still get to get into heaven. So using the parables, there will be people in heaven that have no rewards. Mm-hmm. As in, they did no good works throughout their life, but just using parables, let alone all the things you just said, we know that some people are going to have no works, but they're still going to get in. 
Yeah, Paul describes them as in 1 Corinthians 3 as those for whom everything is burned up, like wood, hay, and stubble at the at the Bema. So they'll still enjoy eternity in heaven, and heaven will be a blissful, positive experience for everyone, but there will be degrees of reward and, uh, and degrees of blessing in heaven, and that's where uh, this fruitfulness comes into play. Yeah, and we talked about it with my kids, and I just said, you know, there will be at some point, don't know when it's going to happen, if it's only at the at the judgment seat or things like that. But there will be when those people that don't have any rewards, there will be a moment of regret of which is not sin because we're now sinless. But there will be a moment of regret of why didn't I live my life better? Because yeah. they will have no rewards. They won't have any crowns to cast at Jesus's feet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They're empty handed. Yeah. Um, and so when we say things like, well, faith must produce works, or if you don't have any works, you got to question it. The Bible in a couple different spots makes it clear that there will be people with no works, no rewards. And we have to be okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, from a eternal salvation perspective, it's, it's a reality. Now, of course, I'm always quick to point out that it's not to say we are advocating for oh, a no. life of no fruit. I mean, there are serious consequences to sin. It Sin is, is awful. It will, as I said Sunday at church, it'll take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, keep, keep you longer than you want to stay. And so uh, that's what sin does. It's, a, it's terrible. But we've got to break free from this satanic notion, and that's exactly what it is, that somehow suggests we play a role in our own salvation and our works can either get us into heaven, keep us out of heaven, you know, cause us to lose our ticket to heaven, cause us to invalidate the fact that we're saved. No, works and grace are completely mutually exclusive, and grace is the only way you can be saved. So if you're trying to think of your salvation in terms of your behavior, I had this conversation just yesterday after church with a a lady. You know, people always go to the, the worst possible scenarios, right? So they go, well, what about the homosexuals or what about this or the murderers or this? And I'm going, look, you know, there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer cannot also commit if he or she is walking in the flesh. And so somehow people miss the point. It's the old plank versus the speck thing. You know, they're somehow we've gotten quite comfortable thinking that our sins, pride, lust, anger, jealousy, all those things mentioned in Galatians 5, that those sins are okay, and we're, we can still be saved even though we're still struggling with those sins. But all of a sudden, somebody, you know, is committing these, you know, big so-called big sins, you know, and we go, oh, there's no way they can be saved. Well, I mean, that's absurd. I mean, you know, all sin is an offense to a holy God, and now our sins aren't okay any more than anyone else's sins okay. Now, there's different consequences. There are different, uh, you know, uh, discipline and 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 things like that. Scripture makes that very clear. But we must resist the urge to hastily conclude that someone's not a Christian just because they're committing some big sin. Uh, and and so that's because grace and works. You know, we're not saved by works. So our works. You know, uh, in, in a normal healthy sense, in a normal healthy situation. The believers, the Spirit of God within the believers should produce godliness and righteousness and peace and all the fruit of the Spirit. But when we cater to the flesh, we're not going to look like that. And if you cater to the flesh long enough, like you just described here in this parable of the kingdom, you know, it you can be completely choked out 
and either never bear fruit or become unfruitful either way. So yeah, great point. And now we've talked a lot about the salvific implications and applications of this. Mm -hmm. Let's kind of bring it home with what new information about the kingdom does this parable give us? Yep. So the new information about the kingdom is not everybody's going to re react to the word the same way. You know, we know from Revelation that the army that Satan amasses is going to be very, 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 very big. <laughs> and they're going to surround Jerusalem. I think it's described as more than the sand on the seashore. I mean, imagine the biggest beach you can, and it's more than that, you know, and that's just the one soil. Uh, there will be people living throughout the kingdom that never produce anything. They're going, they're going to go into the eternal state, but they never do a good work. Um, and so that's the new information is all these different attitudes. Now, like so many of the parables, they are about the kingdom, not about the church. But by way of analogy, um, right now in the church age, don't we have an opportunity to believe or not believe the gospel? And don't we have opportunities to be unfruitful or, or fruitful? So by way of application, this one's one of the easier ones. Don't you want to be the hundredfold soil? <laughs> yeah. That's about the kingdom, but it's as far as our fruitfulness, it's really not any different right now. And yeah. So we want to be that soil that produces that much. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Well said. I mean, you, you know, Jesus is trying to set the stage for the fact that uh, the closer he we get to the kingdom, the kingdom age, uh, the more disparity we're going to see among God's people, Israel, in how they respond to the kingdom message. And uh, it's interesting that he, in Matthew's account, leads with, and maybe with all of them, I'm not, I haven't really yeah. compared them all, but he leads with this one, because yeah. it's right after he's formally rejected, you know, mm -hmm. the kingdom, uh, or the nation, because they rejected the kingdom. And now he's basically saying, okay, which category are you going to fall into someday? Exactly. And so, yeah, we want to be the fruitful ones. And, and by the way, I'll just throw this out. To be fruitful, you do not have to be in front of people. Um, you don't have to have a podcast. You don't have to be a pastor. Um, there are so many things like, I'll just throw it out, praying in your private mm -hmm. room that I, I think I've heard you say this before, JB, and the more I read scripture, the more it's so true. I think we're going to be very uh, surprised at who some of the people that are most rewarded in heaven. Yeah, um, You know, Jesus multiple times says things <clears> like the first will be last and the last will be first. When he talks about John, he talks about him being the greatest among women. Then he follows it by saying, but the greatest will be last and the last will be first. You know, so you think about that for a second. As great as John the Baptist was, Jesus is openly saying, hey, there are people out there that you don't even think that are going to be just as great. Yeah. Um, kind of thing. And so be yeah. a be a fruitful Christian is always <laughs> Amen. Yeah. And, and that, that's exactly right. Because our rewards uh, are not based upon our actions, but the based upon our actions with the right motive. In fact, mm -hmm. in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, he goes on to describe that it's the counsels of the heart that are really being rewarded. So I think there are a lot of people, just to, to kind of say another way what you just said, there are a lot of people who outwardly look like they're doing all the right things 
And in some cases, they may not even be believers. I mean, a, a non-Christian can act moral yeah. in the same way that a Christian can act immoral, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the most moral people in the world are people who reject the deity of Christ and reject Jesus as the Son of God and the only one who can save him. And they think they've got to do these good works to get to heaven. So, uh, you know, it's when we get evaluated, it's going to be our, our motives of our heart. And so a lot of the public figures and people that have a public platform you know, let's hope and pray that, you know, uh, we we do what we do with a pure heart. I certainly pray all the time for the Lord to to really help me remember what it's about, to, to clear, clearly give the gospel, to, to, you know, to be kind and gracious and try to make a difference in this world. We're not looking to, uh, you know, make a name for ourselves. We're certainly not looking to get rich um, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, trusting the Lord. And, uh, and so now I'm not suggesting that, you know, other public ministries that are far more uh, famous than not by works are all bad. I, I don't know their heart. I, I don't know that at all. I hope they're not. I hope they have a great heart attitude. But the key is it's the attitude and the and the motive that's evaluated. And you're right, the the people that are on in their prayer closet having private moments of prayer <clears throat> for their pastor or interceding for others, you know, they may be rewarded incredibly richly and we never even knew it this side of heaven. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. So that's the parable of the sower. I mean, which yeah. soil are you going to be? You know. Yeah. So, and we've got uh, eight more if you count. Uh, what is it? The parable of the lamp. That's the extra one. The parable of the growing seed. It's only oh, found right. in Mark. Okay. Yeah. Right, he yeah. sandwiches them in his gospel with other mystery kingdom parables, but Matthew didn't include it. So that's why yeah. I say there's nine. Yeah. So to <clears throat> summarize, and then I'll give you the last word here. A parable is a story that's drawn from everyday life and placed alongside parabolo, throw beside mm -hmm. a moral truth of some kind of spiritual truth. And so um, the parables of the kingdom are uh, new information about the kingdom that Jesus begins to unveil specifically to the disciples in light of the fact that the nation of Israel has formally uh, rejected their Messiah, which is what Jesus calls the unpardonable sin. So a lot more to come as we dive into this. But for me, the takeaways are we had some great application that you gave us uh, in terms of personal salvation and the fact that, uh, you know, you can only be saved by faith, belief in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for our sins, uh, the personal application of being fruitful, <laughs> Uh, that's great. But to me, uh, from an end times perspective, it's a reminder that the kingdom has not been canceled. You know, the no. kingdom is still coming and it's going to come maybe a little slower than the Jews might have thought, uh, you know, and in a different fashion uh, than they thought. Uh, people are going to respond differently to it uh, throughout Israel's history, but it's coming. Amen. Yep. Yeah. There is no cancellation of it in fact there's a further definition of it because jesus is giving more details yeah you know and, and it really falls in line you know jesus okay when you come to the new testament you know god jesus is expecting you to be familiar with the old testament mm -hmm. so he's just building upon everything you should already know and so yeah. it just gives us more and more and actually the parable of the dragnet or i'm sorry uh, the parable of the householder which we'll get to is going to make that point that you got to put the old information with the new, and then you get this complete understanding. So yeah, amen. And uh, you, 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 the New Testament can never change the meaning of the Old Testament. 
right? Mm-hmm. It can yeah. add more information. It can fill in some details, but the New Testament can never fundamentally change the meaning of the Old Testament. And that's the problem with a replacement theology. They start with the New Testament and read it back into the Old Testament and all of the national promises to Israel with all of their rich detail and specific uh, aspects of it, even down to you know boundaries and dimensions of the temple itself and Ezekiel, all of that is just kind of swept away and called the church. Um, mm-hmm. We believe you start with the Old Testament and you read progressively what God revealed over time, and he always gives more information, but he never changes what he originally gave, because if he did, then the original audience you know, what does that mean for them? They had, they had misinformation, right? <laughs> right. And, and I think I'll, I'll kind of conclude with this. The interesting thing, I don't know. I, I think this JB and maybe, you know, I could be off on this, but the drive can be to maybe make some of these parables a little more applicable to people's personal life. Um, but when you understand them in their context, mm-hmm. they are really applicable and you learn more and you learn that God's going to make good on his promises. Um, and if he was faithful to Israel, he's going to be faithful to you. Now, you may not understand how or why, but he is. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, we don't need to change what the parables mean just because it's maybe not directly applicable to our life. They're still very applicable in their context. Yeah, absolutely. All scripture is profitable, Paul tells us. Profitable meaning useful. It'll help us accumulate knowledge and help us grow, uh, you know, in righteousness. So, well, we've been talking with Lucas Doremus. Lucas, thank you so much for your time with us today. Uh, We'll get you on again, hopefully next week, if your schedule permits, and we'll pick up our discussion of Matthew 13 and the the mystery parables of the kingdom. So uh, thanks for being with us. Oh, you're very welcome. So uh, again, great week ahead. Uh, we'll later on today uh, we will be posting uh, the third episode of Doctor Hickson answers your questions, and we've got a full slate of guests and events uh, throughout the week. Uh, come out and see us Tuesday night, tomorrow night at Prophecy Night in Plum Creek, uh, at Plum Creek Chapel in Denver. Uh, always reach out if we can help you with anything. And then someone asked me to mention, <clears throat> and I've not done this very often at all, but. <clears throat> We do. Um, uh, we are, a, you know, a faith-based ministry in the sense that the Lord provides for our needs. And if you, the Lord ever lays it on your heart uh, to support our ministry, you can do that through notbyworks.org. Just click on the donate button. I'm a firm believer that the local church is God's divine design for uh, fulfilling the Great Commission today. So I hope that you're involved in a local church. Uh, Bible-believing church that handles the Word of God correctly, and you ought to give first and foremost to them. That's God's divine design. Uh, so, <clears throat> but over and above that, if the Lord puts on your heart to support another ministry, uh, you can support Not By Works at uh, our website, notbyworks.org. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks again, Lucas, and we will see everyone uh, next time. God bless.